welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is podcast number 209. And on this podcast, I sit down with lawyer Aaron Jackson. So you're probably thinking, cool, we're going to get some good legal information, or why would a lawyer come on a, a podcast that is mainly for healthcare and physical therapy? Well, Aaron was part of the patient panel at the combined sections meeting back in February. And this panel was put together so that clinicians can get a glimpse into what it's like to be on the patient side of things, advocating for your own health care, being part of the journey, being the journey, which is the patient journey. So now Aaron is a happy and healthy health care attorney, in the Chicago area, and a former physical therapy patient. Graduating first in her law school class, she and her husband now run their own firm where they specialize in healthcare law. Erin spends her free time broadening awareness of women's health issues and working to improve access to the healthcare system, which is fantastic. She has published two articles about regulatory healthcare issues and has a third article forthcoming in the fall. Now that she's healthy, her hobbies include aerial yoga, bar, Rock climbing and running, she's currently training to begin practicing stand-up paddleboard yoga on Lake Michigan and to run faster than her husband. So Erin, like I said, was part of this patient panel at CSM, and her story is so compelling, and I don't think very very much out of the ordinary at all. Um, So in this episode, we talked to what led up to Aaron's years of persistent pain. I'm talking almost a decade, people. Uh, the challenges of living with persistent pain, Aaron and I both can relate to this, and, and we both share our experiences with persistent pain. Her advice for people who have pain and her experiences with the path to recovery. And finally, what clinicians can do to better treat patients with persistent pain coming from the patient perspective, um, and the patients being both Aaron and I, because we've both had um, some really long bouts with persistent pain, and this podcast is very personal and very honest, so I hope you all enjoy it. And I, again, want to thank the sponsor for today's podcast, audible.com. If you love to listen to books while driving or walking or commuting, then head over to, head over to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. That's my affiliate link. You can sign up there. You can get a free month and a free book. They have over 180,000 books to choose from, from fiction to nonfiction to business to healthcare. So broaden your horizons. Head on over to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart and get your free month and your free download. So uh, again, a big thank you to Aaron for being so open and honest in this interview, and I hope you all enjoy it. Hi, Erin, and welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and like I said in the intro, everyone, Erin was one of the patients at the Combined Sections meeting in Anaheim, California. That was a couple of weeks ago, and she was one of the patients on the patient panel, and I think I wrote in my blog post about this that uh, yourself and Lisa were two very brave people to come up and tell your story in front of a room full of complete strangers. <laughs> so we thank you very much for that, and I think it was very powerful. So I'm very happy to have you on the podcast now to talk even a little bit more about uh, your journey and, and what you've gone through and the hopes that this talk will resonate with other people out there who have chronic pain, who think that this is it, this is their life, and they have no one to turn to and nowhere to go. Um, so let's let's first so let's get talking so that people can get inspired and get moving. So why don't you just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about your story, um, what led up to your years of chronic pain, and we'll kind of take it from there. Okay. Um, so a little background on me: I'm 30. I'm an attorney. Uh, living in Chicago with my husband and my dog, and these days I'm very active. Um, And two years ago, I was wheelchair-bound and couldn't walk, couldn't have sex, couldn't wear pants, couldn't wear underwear, was in horrific 10 out of 10 pain every day, 
I hate the pain scale because it doesn't seem like when you're in pain and you answer, it's 10 out of 10. It even represents where you are. But um, that was two years ago. I was in the worst shape of my life. But I had some sort of discomfort or pain stretching back eight years before that. So my first flare was when I was 19. Um, so it's been a long journey. Mm-hmm. Very long, very long. And so you're, you, have, you have your first flare of, of pelvic pain yeah. when you were 19. So how did it get from this first flare of pelvic pain to wheelchair bound? That's, that's started, a leap, right? <laughs> it's a huge leap. It's because I started seeing doctors about it. Um, it actually, at the beginning, it sort of just petered along as a flare. And I would take some NyQuil and go to sleep and wake up and it was better. And I'd ignore it for a month or something. And it actually became worse much quickly, much more quickly, once I started seeing providers. Um, I started having more flares, was in more pain, and they really they amped up the progression of it and made it much worse. And why do you think that was? What, can you connect anything to maybe what they did or what they said to your increasing disability and pain? So it's tough. I think everyone I saw was really well-intentioned. I think they all really wanted to help me. Um, and so everyone really tried to do a lot. Each, each new person tried to do a lot. Um, they didn't always ask questions, especially the right questions, before they began acting. Before they began doing stuff to me, they didn't always ask questions. Um, so an example, like the earlier days that I was in PT, my exercise regimen at the time was running stairs <laughs> in a gymnasium. And I was having these pelvic pain flares like monthly or something, but the rest of the time I was doing okay. And I started getting like hip pain and low back pain and like other pretty near, I'm like upper adductor <laughs> pain. <laughs> and the PT who I was seeing for it um, never asked me about pain with sex, pain with, you know, pelvic pain. And so I think that people just weren't asking and I didn't have the, the know-how, the comfort level, whatever, to be able to pinpoint where it was coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and I think oftentimes when it comes to pelvic pain that people tend to be a little shy about that. Uh, I think on the provider side, maybe a little shy about asking. Yeah. And, and on the patient side, a little uncomfortable maybe about talking about it. And I yeah. think Sandy said even during the CSM panel, did she say it then or did she say it another time? I don't remember. But that pelvic physical therapy is physical therapy. It's still PT. There's still muscles and joints and ligaments and soft tissue. It just happens to be in a dark cave. Yeah. That's right? what she told me. I said that during my talk. Did you say, yeah. 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 She said, I don't know why people think what I'm doing isn't PT. I practice orthopedics in a cave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I mean, just because people blush when they talk about that sort of small... <laughs> small part of us doesn't mean that it's not connected to everything else and that it's it's got the same complexities. Yeah, absolutely. Can't just ignore it. Absolutely. Okay, so you start out with some flares. Fast forward several years, you're wheelchair bound. Let's talk about, because let's say there's people listening here to this podcast. Maybe they have persistent pain and we're calling it persistent pain. No more chronic pain, right? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> because chronic pain means... It's chronic for the rest of your life, too bad, suck it up, live with it. Persistent pain means, yes, it's persistent right now, but it can be overcome. And I think it's a nice way, it's just, it's just a word, Yeah. but words have meaning, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, of course. Yeah. So let's talk about, for you, what was it like to live with chronic pain for, see, 19, I'm doing my math, that's a long time. 1920, yeah. 10 years, roughly? It was my 20s. It, it was, was your 20s. 20s. And everyone knows what you do in your 20s. Yeah. You're supposed <laughs> to be hanging out, going out, having fun, you know? So, so talk about what were the biggest challenges for you during that time living with, that, with the persistent pain? Um, aside from the 
gravity of the pain itself, which is all-consuming and distracting and makes it so that your brain is, at any time, if your brain's like a pie chart, it's like 99% of it at any time is devoted to thinking about how much pain you're in. And so all the rest of your functional <laughs> daily activities and everything has to come out of the remaining 1%. And everything is draining. It's draining to go to the grocery store or to have lunch with a friend. And so it's a really isolating experience. And providers aren't the only ones who are uncomfortable talking about pelvic pain and sex and stuff. Your friends and family are too a lot of times. So people very close to me, some of them were very uncomfortable with the topic um, or didn't believe in it. And um, my husband and I have said, what do you mean you don't believe in it? <laughs> like, it exists. It's yeah. real. Yeah. Um, and it was just this really lonely experience. And I think that what some people who have been fortunate not to experience this forget is that it affects everyone in your life. So it had a profound effect on my husband and my family. Um, I grew distant from friends during this time because they're out having fun and dancing and dating and all this stuff. They're just, they're being 23 or 27 or whatever. Um, and I'm laying in bed with an ice pack, a perineal, you know, postnatal ice pack or something. And it just was, Every day was the same as the one before it and the same as the one after it. And it's really difficult. Yeah, I, and, and I agree with that. I mean, I, I've talked about this on the show, um, but I have had also chronic pain for, I would say, most of my 30s. Um, so at least I got my 20s out of the way. But <laughs> I had chronic pain for most of my 30s. And I guess I'm telling my age. Um, but... <laughs> And it's the same thing. Like, I always felt, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I would always see all of my friends sort of moving on and, you know, getting married and having kids. And I was just hoping, like, fingers crossed today I can get out of bed and my yeah. neck not hurt or be able to move my hand. And and I also think that it's it's very isolating because you don't want to like, I know I didn't, I was like, I don't want to hang out with people who are happy and moving on with their life because I'm not, because I'm stuck in this sort of pain spiral. So yeah. it sucks and it's yeah. lonely and, and it's hard to, I remember one of my friends was like, well, I don't understand. Just come out. Like, and I'm like, I don't want to, because when I'm out, all I'm thinking about is how much pain I'm in. Like you said, that 99%, right? Yeah. So even when you're out with good intentions and you want to have a good time, all you're thinking about is, God, my neck hurts, or in your case, God, I have this pelvic pain, and you're not having fun. No, and I remember at one point, I, I really pushed myself, and I went out to have coffee with someone, and it some provider along the way had given me this like neon yellow foam donut to sit on and said I had to sit on it at all times. So I'm in like a coffee shop wearing this like really baggy like maxi dress, and I think it was like winter in Chicago, so I've got oh. like Uggs and like, I mean, I'm dressed ridiculously. And I've got this neon yellow donut. And it's just, it becomes more difficult to engage with others than it is to just stay home. Because mm -hmm. at least at home, it's not as scary as being out in the world. And you feel so different when you do engage out in the world. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I mean, I sort of had the opposite end of the body. But I remember <laughs> trying to speak to someone and if they were sit like I couldn't sit at a bar because I couldn't turn yeah. my head to talk to someone. <laughs> yeah. And and it would just be tor it was torturous. It was torturous to have to go through that. Mhm. Mm um yeah. and and also you don't really feel all that cute and you don't feel I I don't know what the right word is. Maybe you can think of a better word, but like you don't feel so great about yourself. You don't feel cute, you don't feel pretty, you don't feel happy and and I think when you don't feel that way maybe other people pick up on it or they don't but it's really hard to be in that situation yeah and I had I mean my pain lasted from when I started 
my pain. Skinny jeans, like, weren't even a thing yet. It was still, like, the bootleg or whatever. (laughs) And now they're, like, on their way out or something. Um, But so I almost missed the skinny jean craze. But, I mean, during these years of pain, my friends are in skinny jeans. Everyone starts doing yoga. Um, Yeah, everyone's going to bars and they're sitting at bar stools. And I can't sit at a bar stool. And just, like, other stuff where you just feel not like normal, not yeah. part of high heels. I mean, just, yeah, I think you just start to feel less than, yeah. And no one ever wants to feel less than, you know, a couple of, uh, months ago, I was at this women's gathering. It was like a beauty and health gathering. And there were maybe 10 of us, all different ages, different, um, races, different body types, different everything. Mm-hmm. And we had to go around the room and say, what we felt was beauty. How do we define beauty for ourselves? And for me, like I didn't even think about it. I was like, for me, beauty is defined as being pain-free and being healthy. Yeah. So I feel like if I'm pain-free and I'm relatively healthy, then that's beauty defined for me. And I think when you have chronic pain, persistent pain, when you have persistent pain issues that's a that's a a very real palpable thing that's kind of you're always feeling yeah you're constantly it's it's constantly a cloud it's like a rain cloud over you it just Mm -hmm. follows you around and you can't get away from it and Mm -hmm. even I mean I think my friends during that time thought maybe I was like just sleeping a lot when I was home and people forget when you're in horrible pain you can't sleep I mean I would have. No, you night. can't sleep. <laughs> no, it's Crazy. like no. <laughs> I'm not laying home sleeping. I'm laying home awake, and I was actually sleep deprived, even though mm-hmm. I wasn't doing anything. Because a sheet falling over my crotch at night, if if a soft sheet fell on me, I would wake up. Mm-hmm. It woke me up. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, so much sensory. A lot of allodynia, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. Allodynia is sort of that sensitivity, extreme sensitivity to touch. And a sheet is, is certainly extreme. Yeah. So it's it's not like you're sitting around like watching TV. No, I was so sick of TV. I mean, (laughs) I have seen like every episode of the crappiest TV shows that have been around (laughs) for the last 10 years. Um. (laughs) You've seen every real housewife coming and going. Yeah. Um, Right. Well, you know, it's, and, and I also find that, again, like you said, it, when you, you have that persistent pain that it consumes so much of your brain, that it's not even like you can sit and read a book. No. I mean, you know, gosh, you were, you were going through law school? Yeah. I yeah. mean, how is that even possible? So during this time, I actually was living in a state that I had exhausted the medical care of that state, essentially, as far as I could tell. I mean, I saw all sorts of practitioners and nobody could help me. I just got worse. So I was actually in law school and you have class every day. (laughs) You're very busy. Um, It's so stressful. And I was flying out of state on Thursday evening, getting, getting a rental car at the airport, driving an hour from Denver to Boulder, Seeing a PT in Boulder, going and checking into a hotel, <laughs> getting up the next morning, shit. going to more PT, missing class on Friday, and then I would do three or four hours of PT a lot of times that Friday, and then drive back to the airport, return the rental car. And anyone who's been to Denver knows the airport is like way out there, so doing yes. that weekly <laughs> is a nightmare. I won't even take layovers in Denver anymore. I'm like, <laughs> I have spent enough time at DIA <laughs> for the rest of my life. That's funny. And it's not like the drive from Denver to Boulder is like super smooth piece of cake. No. You no. know, like that's, it's a far drive. And yeah. we have pelvic pain. Yeah. And, and you have trouble sitting. Yeah. Like this is not an ideal situation. No. And I mean, people forget that you can't always see pain. And just because someone hurts... They're not going to necessarily be limping or clutching some limb or sort of, and I would actually sometimes, I would find myself limping to get sympathy because I was in such pain that I needed to 
communicate. It's like it was subconscious. I needed to communicate to people to be kind to me mm. <laughs> as someone who was suffering. And things like pre-boarding um, an airplane because I needed help with my bag because I was in such horrific pain. It was difficult. People would ask me for proof that I was disabled, that I looked fine. Family members and friends, I had a, a relative suggest that I get a cane even though I didn't need it because I didn't look sick. And it's so hard to live in pain and then have the world not not only not be sympathetic because they don't know about it, but not validate it when they are told. And that's really hard. Yeah, you know, I'm so happy that you just said that because oftentimes people with persistent pain, they're not in a wheelchair. Although I saw pictures of you at that CSM, buddy. You did not look well. So I don't know how anybody could think that you were okay. No, I looked terrible. I was yeah. like a skeleton. Yeah, you did not look well. Um, but oftentimes when you have persistent pain, whether it be pelvic pain, low back pain, neck pain, you're not limping around or migraines. Migraines, that's, that's persistent pain. You're not limping around. Some days you feel okay so you can do things. But like you said, you can muster up the energy to go for lunch and then you're, you're spent the rest of the day, right? Yeah. Or you can muster up the energy to maybe work a little bit and then you're spent the rest of the day. And so just because you don't have a cast, you don't have a brace, you don't have a walker, you don't have a wheelchair, it doesn't mean that the pain that you're feeling isn't real, and it doesn't mean that you are not to be believed. Yeah. You know, and I, and people who don't understand that just need to be educated a little bit. And for those people who do understand it, even then it takes some time. You know, like you said, friends and family, loved ones, it takes time for them to really understand, like, this is a serious issue, and, yeah. and the pain is no joke, you know? Yeah, it's not, it's not comparable to, in your 20s, to the hangover headache that <laughs> no, no, you know, no. one of my girlfriends has on, on Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a ridiculous, all-consuming thing, and I think that... A lot of, there was one time I had a um, handicap placard for my car for when I did drive. Um, I would hang it up. And at one point, I went to the grocery store and pulled into one of the first spots and hung it up and got out of the car. And a man yelled at me and said, I wasn't even disabled. So why was I using that spot? And I'm like a really low key person. And I turned around and yelled at him. <laughs> And said, you have no idea what I'm going through. And Good for you. I remember I was upset about it for like a week because he said what I felt like other people were thinking. And it was finally an opportunity to be like, no. And I think I pointed at him and said, you have no idea what's going on with me. Yeah, it's true. And, and you don't know because you can't be in other people's shoes literally. And so... It sounds to me like you sort of reached your breaking point and this guy got the, so. got the wrath of Aaron for a couple yeah. of minutes. Well, who yells at someone in a parking lot for that? It, it just was True. so demonstrative to me of like, like, I know I don't look sick and that's what everyone keeps telling me. And yeah, of course you're saying that. And you start to doubt your own experience. And I had providers who told me that it was in my head and I needed to see a, a psychiatrist or something like this. And it just, you start to question just, it, it consumes your whole reality. And then when people question whether it's actually happening, it's this ridiculously disarming and disorienting experience. Well, because then you think, am I crazy? Yeah. Like I must be, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly, if, if no one else, if people can see me. And they don't, they're looking at me and they don't think that I'm sick or that I'm in pain. Am I? Like, am I? And then, then that's a dangerous spot to be in, you yeah. know? And I think all of this, now that we know, looking at it through the lens of a biopsychosocial model of care, it just fans the flames and, yeah. and can really uh, start an uptick of your pain experience. So let's talk about, you mentioned you saw a lot of clinicians. Um, so let's talk about this. So there's a number of clinicians, like we said, they're all well-intentioned clinicians. 
and and they're out there to quote unquote fix you. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you've heard or that you've experienced um, that looking back on it is like a real head shaker. Um, gosh, head scratcher. Anyway, go ahead. Both? So when I met Sandy Hilton, I was on, and when I met my, I keep saying my current pain doctor, but I haven't seen him in like six or eight months or something. So he's not actually my current pain doctor, but the guy that helped me really improve, Dr. Frank too in Chicago, um, I was on 12 medications and I mean, it, it was... So a bunch of them were topicals. They were vulvar topical meds. And I had entered pelvic PT two years earlier and had been wearing pants and underwear to my first visit. And then started seeing this pain doctor in Denver and was prescribed all these meds. And things started swelling up and getting red and irritated and... They said, well, your pain is getting worse. It's, it's a reaction to the pain, the tissues above painful areas and stuff get red and irritated. And when I saw Dr. Two, he's like, um, you're having a dermatological reaction to something. It, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> but I was on those for two years. Whoa. So it was like, it took, so he stopped everything. And I was totally freaked out. And... Why? Why? Well, it wasn't working, but doing nothing was even scarier than going through the motions every day and doing something that someone thought would help. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he pulled me off everything, and Sandy was so reassuring and said, like, you know, each week when I saw her, the tissues looking better and swelling went down. And sure enough, some of the reason why I was walking around with this like really wide-legged stance is because I was so swollen from two years of allergic reactions to my skin. Um, and so, so that was one ridiculous thing. Like this doctor's examining me every couple of weeks. Why did she not make any connection between what she was doing and the way that my skin was responding? I mean, it's a cream. So that. Mm -hmm. Um, gosh, there were countless examples of just ridiculous things. I, I saw, um, various PTs for dry needling for a while. And sometimes I would go in and I remember one session, they did 23 needles in one session, like in my back and my, they were poking them like in my pelvic in between my hips and like right a couple inches below my belly button and stuff like that, where really tender areas and, I feel like I went into some of these appointments, laid down on the table. They started doing treatments to me. I gripped the table and like tensed up and flushed and was just so anxious and in pain during the treatments. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I can't imagine why anyone would think that anything they were doing would be helpful if that's the physical response. That's a big sympathetic response. Sympathetic, you know. That kind of, that flushed feeling that, I mean, I used to start shaking, like, and I would feel like my intestines were shaking and coming (laughs) from the inside out. That was sort of my response. And I would get nauseous sometimes. And I'm thinking, something is missing here. Like, this is not what is supposed to get me better. Right. And I knew it. As a clinician, I knew it. But I didn't know what that missing piece of the puzzle was. So, you know, you've got medications. I was on a lot of medications, like pain meds, muscle relaxers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Didn't work. And it doesn't sound like it worked for you. No. Um, Didn't work. So I know my big turnaround, um, and we sort of spoke about this before we went on air, was meeting David Butler, um, Dr. David Butler, physical therapist um, in Australia, wrote the book Explain Pain with Lorimer Mosley. I met him, and he was a, an incredible clinician to me. Um, and I always say, like, he changed, yes, he changed and, and changed my pain, but not only that, he completely changed my life. And 
that's such a powerful thing and it's because he listened and he asked thoughtful questions and he gave me things that I can do to take to empower myself to feel better. Um, and I know we were talking, so you started seeing Dr. Sandy Hilton, a physical therapist in Chicago. And would you say you had a similar experience? What was the, what was different about her that other people were not doing? So a lot. <laughs> Under Sandy, I recovered completely, but the first visit I left her office and said to my husband, I don't know what kind of quackery this is, <laughs> but there's no drugs, no needles, <laughs> no nothing. And I don't want anything to do with this. And he said, but she was so friendly. And she asked you all these questions. I think she gave me a hug or something. And so we go back for the second visit. And he's like, all week, like been advocating for, her. you know, he's like, this just seems different to me. And we walk in and he's like, all right, Sandy, is this really going to work? Because she's skeptical. <laughs> and I think I had like walked on ahead and laid down on the table in the room or something like, go ahead and do whatever you're going to do to me. I'm going to check the box that I was here. And she was like, if I can't help you, I'm going to get you to someone who can. And that was the first time we had heard that. That was the first time we had heard something other than either this is in your head and you need to see a psychiatrist or I know exactly what's going on and I will tell you exactly what to do. And the end result of that is when you don't get better and someone's telling you exactly what to do, it's your fault. You didn't get better. Right. It's it, all of a sudden the blame lays on you as the patient. Yeah. Because they, compliant. they, yeah, you're not, because they said, listen, I can fix you because I know exactly what's wrong. And boy, that's a dangerous statement to make as a clinician. So if you're a clinician listening to this, especially if you're a student listening to this, pay close attention because that is not the way to talk and to connect with your patients. Yeah. I think that with Sandy, she finally, someone heard me. Someone took a, a moment to say, what are you trying to accomplish? What would you like to do? Um, before CSM, there was an opportunity to provide handouts and stuff that I think went out on the, the system to all attendees. And I included my intake note from Sandy and then a note from like a year and a half later. And the intake note has comments about things like, she's an attorney and can't work. Um, where I had previous providers who didn't even realize I was like in law school or an attorney or whatever was going on. They just weren't in tune with what I was trying to accomplish. Right. And it, it's, it's all about not just saying, what are your goals? Oh, goal is to have zero out of 10 pain. Goal is to have range of motion. Goal is to wear pants. It's what do you value the most in your life? And how can you use those values to guide your treatment plan? Yeah. So, you know, the values in your life, listening to CSM and even talking to you today, is to be a lawyer, to get married, to have yeah. a relationship with your husband. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. And those are super important. But if you never ask, well, what is it about your life that you really want to get back to? Yeah. You know, and Sandy asked the question, well, you know, oh, people say, I want to get better. Well, what does better look like for you? Right. Because better for you is much different than better for me. And it's yeah. different than, it's, Sandy's better is different than ours. And so yeah. I think to go in and make these goals of reduce pain to five out of 10, increase range of motion to, who cares? Because well, then what does that where, even mean? What does it mean? Where, what does that mean? Who cares? Yeah, I wanted to live the life that, that I wanted to do the things I had been envious of my friends doing for the 10 years prior. And some of those things, I went and did them. And I was like, I don't know what all the hype is. That's miserable. <laughs> like, I've gone to the bar classes. Oh, my God. Oh, it's terrible. It's torture. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I really wanted to go. And I went a few times and was like, oh, my God, I hate this. But I wanted to be able to try. I wanted to engage. You wanted to that. have the experience. Yeah. Because, 
you're a, a young girl, a young woman. You should experience, you should be able to experience these things without fear of, of pain. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a big deal. And, and so maybe, let's say, having pain zero out of 10, that's, that's a long-term goal. Well, maybe that's not your goal. Maybe your goal is like, you know, I'm okay if I have a little bit of pain now and again, but I really want to take a bar class. Or I want to go kayaking. I want to go rock climbing. I want to, you know, have a relationship with my husband and my friends and my families. And I want to go out and hang out. And I yeah. want to, you know, I want to work. I want to be a lawyer. I want to. So I think really, and like you said, Sandy really listened. Yeah. And that came through on those reports. Well, whose life goal is to be in zero out of 10 pain? I mean, that's supposed to be like the default status. And then you build on that. So yeah. when that's the goal you're working towards, what kind of motivation is that? Especially when people have told you, I had doctors and stuff tell me that I could get pregnant someday using a turkey baster or this sort of stuff or that I could, because I couldn't have sex, or I could get pregnant, but like, before 33 weeks, I'd need to have a C-section because a fetus weighing on my cervix would surely, like, just, I mean, I'm picturing, like, exploding. exploding. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, it, I was just scared out of my mind about what would happen, basically, if I started living, because they had created all these worst-case scenarios, and I had nowhere to go. Yeah, so, and can you imagine being scared of living? and having that much fear. And I think people with persistent pain, that is a very, very real thing. And, yeah. and, and then it, that permeates all the decisions that you make. Yeah. And, and then you have fear avoidance and catastrophization. And we know through studies that that actually ramps up your pain. Yeah. So you can't do this, this, and this. So you're afraid of living. So you don't do this, this, and this. And it ramps up your pain. And then you're more fearful. And you have more pain. And yeah. It just spins out of control. Yeah. And so what you stop doing when you have pain is you stop doing the good stuff. So I wouldn't, I couldn't have sex. I couldn't go out and have fun with my friends. I couldn't do the exercise classes I wanted. But the bad stuff, like, of life, like, lose, we lost a dog. We had family issues that happened. That stuff doesn't stop when you're in pain. So someone who lives in persistent pain is operating out of this just incredible, like, emotional deficit. It's just you're only able to passively experience the things that happen to you because you don't have the energy to engage. And so it's just this really hard existence. Yeah, agreed, 100%. So now how, how did working with Sandy differ from working with all these other practitioners, aside Sandy, from listening. <laughs> Sandy um, is kind and compassionate, and Sandy does not take insurance, which was different than other providers I had seen, and it actually made a big difference in my treatment approach. Um, and not to like be a huge advocate for that, but it was a noticeable difference in the treatment approach. Um, her care of me was not driven by what my insurance would reimburse. It was driven by her compassion and her sensitivity to the goals that I voiced. And it was also, it was so tailored to where I was at in the moment. And Sandy has this amazing ability to be creative and resilient. And it wasn't just, you know, a straight incline upward where I didn't have a single other flare or setback or anything. I mean, it was rocky, but she was always there. I could email her and she was always reassuring. Um, she didn't claim to have all the answers, but she promised to support me as we both tried to remedy this for me. Right. So that therapeutic alliance made a huge difference. Yeah, it's huge to have an ally through it. Mm -hmm. um, it's huge. And how long, so you start working with Sandy. So, so just to recap, this started when you were 19. You start working with Sandy when you're about 28, 29, yeah. 28, 29. So you've had nine to 10 years of failed treatments and doctor visits, medications. You meet Sandy. You have a good rapport, a good relationship. 
Um, she's doing things based on your values and your goals and is, because I, I, I know this is what she did, but using sort of graded uh, approaches to treatments. Yeah. And how long did it take for you to start feeling better? A year, two years, three years? Um, a week later, I was able to walk out to the beachfront path near my, my house. Um, I didn't start riding a bike the day after I saw her, but I, I have some journals from that time, and I was so proud of myself that I could get up one day about a week after seeing her and make my own breakfast. I made myself a cup of tea and a bagel and was, like, so proud of myself. I was able to walk myself into the bathroom. Um, without needing help, I was able to walk around outside with the dogs. And about a month later, I was able to walk a little over a mile. And I have some notation in my calendar from about six weeks later that I walked four miles. And that is huge. It was so insane. It it, and you were probably, you know what, what I find, and I don't know if you experience this as well, but like when you start feeling better, you get up in the morning and you're like, Wait a second. I, I, I'm. Wait, did I not have? I'm sure I had pain when I got up. But yeah. Did I? No, I didn't. And then you, there is this time, at least for me, and I don't know if you can agree, but there is this time where you start feeling better, and you're like waking up consistently feeling better, and you think like, oh, this is a fluke. Like it is gonna start going downhill real fast, real soon, and so you almost doubt that you don't have pain? If that even yes. makes sense? Do you, did, did you feel that way? <laughs> oh my god, totally. So for years, people tell you you're not in pain. And then finally, you're not in pain. So you can actually contrast the experience of no pain with having pain, which makes you more certain that you actually did have it in the past. And now makes you wonder if you've completely lost your mind. And like, <laughs> you're just like, numb to it. Or it's like, so flown off the deep end of their pain scale that it's like you're just not even, you know, like, <laughs> have you just stopped experiencing it because it's so terrible? And I remember I was talking to one PT at CSM who was telling me about one of her own patients. And what I was telling her was after I started improving, when I started walking around again and stuff, um, I kept emailing Sandy and saying, oh my God, I have pain in my legs. I have pain in my hips. And Sandy was like, what does it feel like? And I said, it's creepy crawlies like everywhere. And she said, that's circulation. <laughs> that's <laughs> using your muscles. In bed. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. But it, and I was talking to a, a PT at CSM said her patient was experiencing this and was like really freaked out by it. And so learning what normal body stuff feels like, like digestion, because when you lay in bed all day, you don't have an appetite. I've gained 36 pounds since I was sick. And becoming like fully human again <laughs> is a really weird experience. And mm -hmm. it definitely comes with aches and pains and mm -hmm. is terrifying. Yeah, it is. It really is. And, and I think it's important that people know, whether you're the clinician or the person living with persistent pain, that as you get on that road to not having the pain you're used to, you may have some other aches and pains. And it's not a linear trajectory. You go up and down, there's peaks and valleys, right? Yeah. Um, but then once you get to that point where more of the time you don't have pain than you do have pain, it's like you're super psyched because then you're like, okay, this is, this is how it's supposed to be. Like I can, I, can, I can get down with this. Like this is okay, you know? And yeah. then... Now, at those times when I do have pain, I'm like, this is weird. What's going yeah. on? I don't know. Are you at that stage yet? or? Um, I'm at that stage if it's not reminiscent of my old pain. Mm -hmm. I, I still have, I call them glitches. Um, I still have glitches where I'll have, like, I had cramps a couple of weeks ago and, like, melted down and called Sandy. And I mean, I have been PT, just PRN as needed since August. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm like, oh my God, it's back. And she's like, um, I think this is just because you're a girl. <laughs> um, but it's not your pain. But I was like, sure. It's like my brain got it wrong. My brain thought that I had like knife-like stabbing pain. And it, it was like actually... 
cramps. And so I went home and like relaxed and took a bath and was like, okay, you got to chill out. And Mm -hmm. then like started getting cramps. And I'm like, oh yeah, (laughs) this wasn't (laughs) nice, like stabbing pain. Uh So it takes a while to like reprogram. And no one told me that. Sandy told me that, but no one told me that for all those years. And so I thought that when people said I would get better, that one day they would finally, I mean, people talked about how one day they'd use the dry needle in the right place and it would just sort of flick a switch and something would release. Whatever was causing the pain would release. And so it was weird. And I wish someone had told me that recovery. Were they dry needling inside your brain? Yeah, right. <laughs> they were not, I take no, it? No, they were not, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, or they told me I had nerve blocks done, like, into my sits bones, which are, oh, like. I've had, I've had nerve blocks in my neck. It is not fun. Oh, But I'm that, mm no thanks. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. And they said that it had numbed me for, like, two days. And it's very weird to have everything numb down there for a few days but um they said sometimes patients had it where pain just didn't come back and the the amount of hope you put when you're getting this excruciating injection and then the pain does come back you don't trust the medical providers anymore but to my point it it makes it so you think that recovery will be a switch where one day you'll just be better and I wasn't prepared for the journey that it is yeah and it is a journey and, and I think that I thank you for sharing all of this with us because my hope is that this podcast will really help people who have persistent pain know that there is hope for recovery, yet it's not a, a, a linear trajectory and that you have to be patient and that, Rome, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? So if you've had persistent pain, I always tell people, well, you've had pain for 10 years, sometimes 15 years. Like, it's not going to go away overnight. But you just have to work hard and, and be in it and be present and be willing to be an active participant in your recovery. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's very important. So that I hope that people listening who may have persistent pain can kind of really take that home as a message. What would you like to say to those people listening who might have persistent pain? I think I would um, like to remind people who are in pain that being a patient can become your identity. And while it can be really, it can make you really impatient to um, go, go the journey of recovery. It can feel like it's taking forever. That journey may just provide you with the time you need to reacclimate to being a living, breathing person where you, you slowly pick up tasks Um, and responsibilities again. I mean, when you're doing nothing for yourself, not walking yourself into the bathroom, not making a meal, can you imagine if your pain did just go away overnight? (laughs) Like you would have no idea. I I had to learn how to exist again as an adult and doing that in a supported way with supportive providers, I think was probably safer than had someone just flicked a switch Mm -hmm. at that late stage. Um, And the other thing is just that I really don't think that treatments to get rid of pain should increase it. (laughs) Agree. I think that they should be tailored to your goals. And I would just really encourage people to keep checking in with their goals, what they're trying to accomplish, and to to not let their discomfort with whatever. I, I had providers where I really didn't want them to dump me. I got dumped by a bunch of providers. And so I would, like, not tell them I didn't like what they were doing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And just you have to be true to your goals and yourself because you're, you're the one living in pain. And you have to do everything you can and be your own best advocate to get out of it. Absolutely. And before we kind of wrap things up, what would you like to say to any providers listening, any healthcare providers listening and and perhaps treating those patients with persistent pain. Ask questions and be sympathetic and empathetic and validating. And if you don't know the answer, just don't invalidate the patient's experience. Because it's something you haven't heard of before or seen firsthand before doesn't mean that it's not 
the patient's experience. And remember that the patient is, is a person with a spouse or a significant other or friends or pets or rent payments or desires and dreams and hopes and just they're as much of a dynamic individual as you are and you have a life outside of, of your own profession and remember that they want all that stuff too and they're not just an extreme example of something you learned about in school or um, a drag on Monday mornings because they're your toughest patient. It's just, I would really encourage providers to view these patients as people, as individual human beings and to try to just demonstrate the utmost kindness to them and to be patient with them. It's their whole life experience right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's beautifully said. I couldn't have said it anything better or more profound myself. Um, and so I want to really thank you very much for taking your time and, and coming on the podcast and sharing all that you've gone through because I think it's going to be a big a big help for a lot of people. So thanks so much, Erin, for coming on. Well, thank you. It was great. And really Good. And if someone wants to get in touch with you or perhaps follow you on Twitter or where can they, where can they find you? Um, they can find me on Twitter. I'm Mrs. Jack Soda. Um, <laughs> Jack Soda was my husband's username in law school. <laughs> and we got cute. married during law school. <laughs> oh, so. cute. <laughs> it uh, has some meaning. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on, I'm an attorney. I've got my own firm in Chicago. Um, so they can, they can Google me or reach out to me any other ways. Great. Well, thank you so much again. Um, everyone, I hope that, I don't hope, I know you got a lot out of this talk. I'm not even going to say hope. I know you got a lot out of this conversation with Aaron today. Um, and I want to thank you for listening and have a great week. Uh, you can follow, oh, I guess I could say you can follow me on Twitter. I never promote myself. You can follow me on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. And if you're listening, uh, this is, the podcast is on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and, and the podcast is podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.